Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Lachlan, the expert project leader at Boston Consulting Group, and we discuss how decentralization will evolve in the post-COVID era, how to make the most out of hiring the best talent, and why sometimes indecision can be worse than a bad decision. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So where are you calling in from today, man? I'm calling in from Sydney. Uh, so I've, I've moved to Sydney and um, I've been on, on pretty much a self-imposed or, or government-imposed really lockdown for the last, I'd say, three weeks and trying to, to really master the, the working from home thing with two small kids. I don't. It's like a skill you don't want to have to master, but then you have to master it. Exactly. It, it's, it's really funny in a way how COVID has shown, it's, it's made everyone put their money where their mouth is in terms of this, um, this kind of theory around distributed working. And uh, I find even myself really just replicating or, or trying to catch myself not rep, uh, replicating the kinds of ways of working that I had in the office. I'd do the same things get in the same habits and um, get stressed when I wouldn't be able to do work the same way I could when I had an office and a dedicated team helping me out. And, you know, of course, there's all the, the funny aspects as well as uh, when your kids bust in on a, a WebEx or something and then they can't leave the room. So, you know, it's been a learning curve, let's say. Oh, man, it's changed everything. So what was it like, like, I know what it was like in America, but what was it like in Australia as the lockdowns happened? Yeah, I, I think um, to say that people were concerned would be an understatement. So uh, it's been it's been a real, um, I guess, scary time for a lot of people. So for me personally, it's been a challenge to work, and it's also been a challenge to explain to my family the preparations that uh, you know mum and dad are making uh, to make everyone safe and. You can't go to school uh, at the moment because there's a there's an issue, but everything's going to be okay. And then try and make each and every day kind of fun at home and learn rapidly learn how to homeschool kids and try and make it fun and stay sane at the same time. And I think the government overall has tried to rapidly understand the scale of the problem. So we've had this progressive kind of rolling lockdown um, over, say, two or three-day periods where they'd come out and say, no groups larger than 100, and two days later, no groups larger than 10. And I think uh, they've copped some criticism for that, but I think they were really trying to understand what's the right balance here, and within a week or two they realised the right balance is everyone needs to stay at home so we can flatten the curve. Oh. Man, did you? Um, is your business classified as like an essential business? Well, so it depends. So I, I work with Boston Consulting Group now, and um, we are absolutely flat out supporting our clients remotely. So you know, working from home. There's some work that's been deemed essential where we're supporting the government, um, particularly to do with the response around COVID. And so there may be some travel there, but I haven't personally been traveling. I've been pulling some pretty uh, late nights here at home 
and also trying to, like I said, fit in when you're in the home um, and your kids expect you to be available through some some period of time through the day uh, and trying to get a healthy balance as well. So I haven't had to travel, luckily, um, but I know that there's people in my team that are out there doing the hard yards to try and tackle this thing head on. It's tough. You know, I'm usually a really early person. Some nights I've had to get late because the kids get up really early, right? And so some nights I'm like, I just try to get all the work done when I can. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, there's no clear, easy way to to deal with it. You just kind of do it. You just make it happen. Exactly. But I have a a second one now. I know I told you this on uh, LinkedIn, but I want to tell you face to face. I named my son Lachlan. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's excellent what uh, what a great name to to go through life with i'm sure you've set them up for success there it, it's a very rare name in the u.s though right yeah it's pretty rare and so his name is uh we named him lachlan ray so mm-hmm. ray is his middle name and uh this is how the conversation went uh we're having a boy oh that's pretty cool my wife goes what do you want to name him i go i don't know i talked to this like cool australian today his name is lachlan Maybe we name him Lachlan. She goes, oh, I like that name. I go, cool, what's his middle name? She's like, I don't know. She's like, we let, we let uh, oh, I can't believe I forgot his name. We let our brother-in-law decide because he's like a songwriter, like a famous yeah. songwriter. She's like, let's text him. And he responds back, he was Lachlan Ray. And in five minutes, we had Lachlan Ray. And we're like, all right, that's the name of our son. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, do you make yeah. all of your decisions at that, at that kind of... Um, you know, serendipitous or, or spur of the moment type of way. Usually, yeah. Crazy. You should see how we hire people around here. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, because here's what I found out about hiring people. Like, you really don't know what it's like until you're in the throes of like working together. Like mm-hmm. you get a vibe of someone, like I've spent a lot of time with someone and hired them. And I've spent a little time with someone and hired them and I haven't found much of a difference. So if I find somebody that I, I, or I guess the difference I find is like when I, when I click with their perspective, it doesn't have to be equal to mine. Like it can be different, but when I understand that they have some logic behind their thoughts and they've got some communication skills and they have, you know, they, they meet the requirements for the, the position and I'm like, yeah, all right. So I, I guess I'm known to hire on the spot a lot. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think that it, you've got a really interesting approach to talent, right? Finding talent and, and what do you do with it? And um, a lot of the companies that I've been to have a different approach or, or they're kind of wrestling with it. Like how do we get talent? We need talent to compete. It's so hard to find it. But they go out and they try and find, you know, bright and motivated people and then they put them through this kind of bureaucratic ringer and then they, at the end of it, they're like, well, we didn't get the kind of cookie cutter description that we wanted, um, that we wrote and didn't really think about it at the time. And I think there's been a lot of value in the last couple of years, companies trying to rethink, like, what is talent to us? How do we actually go out and find it and, and get it? And a great example would be if you uh, have a hiring process for engineers that has only enough, um, you know, 10 years experience for an entry level role. And, you know, the most, the people that lose out the most for that are 
um, women or you know people from minority communities that may not have had the same kind of um, opportunities for experience but can bring a wealth of additional kind of knowledge and uh, insight to your teams how do you broaden or make your your talent process more inclusive and also um, less impersonal so that you're getting out of the way of the talent is the way I, I like to say it and, and it's kind of a, a revelation for myself as well when I was really struggling to find teams for my companies in the past and find the right people in the right mix I came to the realization that oftentimes it was I wasn't being clear with what what the mission was or clear on the expectations around how we're going to fulfill it and I spent all my times putting roadblocks up in front of them right to, for, to, to use them to educate me instead of trying to get roadblocks out of their way and work in a more agile way, um, which is a humbling kind of journey to go through. Um, but I'm glad I've realized it now. Oh yeah. Experience is like gaining it has got to, you know, I keep thinking it's a lot like Bitcoin mining, right? Like it takes a lot of work, but then you get a reward <laughs> and uh, that rewards financial. And so yeah, the more experience I gain, the more mistakes I make, I can make decisions quickly. I guess somebody who would be hesitant to hire would be someone, you know, like if you're not clear, that'd be a good one. I, like historically, I'm just thinking of the mistakes I've made. I've made that exact mistake. It's like, I know I need someone, but what do I need? <laughs> you know? Exactly. Uh, and then, uh, then you narrow that down. And then when it comes to the people, I've often found that you know, you and I have met a lot of people in life, right? So we, we, as we gain more experience, meet more people, we get more refined in our abilities to detect things earlier. Mm. And I will, I'll often come across talented people who are stuck in that bureaucratic process within the hiring process of other organizations. And I'm like, if anyone with any sense sat down with this individual, they're going to get hired on their next interview. Uh, and yeah. I need to hire this person now. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a good approach. And, and I'm guessing that, that that has really worked out for you or, or has it ever um, come about oh, yeah. that you've made the wrong call? Oh, well, yeah, wrong is relative, right? So I would say yeah, I've had, uh, the reason why I'm so okay with it, and, and I don't do it all the time. It's not like I have to do it. But the reason why I'm comfortable with it is because I get equal results as waiting a long time and putting people through the long process because yeah. you really just have to let that human get in there burn burn through their uh perfect 30 days you know what i'm saying it's just that you never have that much energy as you do in the we just really got to get into that like 45th day um and we really just have to understand what it's like to wake up every morning and have you on my team because um, that's a huge part of it. I mean, you'd be really talented, but a horrible person to work with. And then it's like, in that case, all the technical interviews in the world don't mean anything. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, I've, I found that by making the decision, it'll either work or it won't. And then I just make another decision. And then I just keep, and that's how I keep moving forward. I don't like that, that like, well, I might go with this person. I kind of like, I kind of like this about them. I'd rather stay out of the middle land, you know? Uh, and then just say, yeah, I have a good feeling about this person. Let's let's go. And it either works or it doesn't. It's a decisive way to do it. I like it. It's the it's that military. Once I heard that military story, 
it's like a, the famous military story of like make a decision you never have all the information and then you just make another decision and you just make once i heard that i was like oh, okay great if the people helping decide the fate of our country are using this methodology then it works for me yeah because indecision is worse than making the wrong decision often oh always always and then you're going to kill yourself and then you're always in that like i don't know or maybe i and then oh man the worst is like seeing that great person hesitating and then them getting a better job offer that is the worst yeah yeah i can imagine you, you don't want to do that so let's talk about startup stuff uh you're you're in the supply chain space last time we talked you did a startup uh, we also talked about how awesome, uh, what's the acronym, BCG? We talked about how awesome yeah. they were last time. You worked with them before, mm -hmm. you did a startup, you're back working with them again. Uh, tell me how how like the progression of the startup went and what you learned from that. Yeah, so uh, um, startups are a very interesting journey to go on, as I'm sure you know, uh, and uh, quite a humbling one as well. Um, but... I think the lessons that I walked away from that and the opportunities that, that um, came from it were amazing. So I'd always encourage anyone to, if they have an idea to chase it because it really worked out in my case. So last time we spoke, uh, we had just, we were just building a smart contract in a smart contract platform. Uh, the smart contract was based on logistics. So it was trying to reduce the cost of moving things from A to B. And it was also, you know, really based on this um, kind of latent capacity or inefficiency in how everybody needs to move things, um, but no one can kind of cooperate. And that causes all of this inefficiency in the system. What that means for you is when a truck arrives at your depot, it's usually late or it has to queue, you can't pack it perfectly. Um, it might be late at its destination because of traffic or uh, you packed it late, right? which ends up there's this kind of compounding inefficiency across the network that you and everyone else ultimately pays for. And the way that we've solved it historically is to throw more money at it, express freight, more trucks, you know, bigger warehouses, try and move things earlier so you hold more inventory. And all of this is really costly. So I had done a couple of transformations with big kind of global clients on this and gotten really frustrated that I couldn't kind of fix it in that silo. So smart contract was really aimed at um, a, a variable rate geolocation basis off of GPS data on the trucks. So we could say, here is the truck is going to be, you need to move this stuff to the warehouse now. And the truck driver, if he's not on time, he's, uh, he's not paid the full rate. But if you make him late, then you have to pay him extra basically. So uh, we built it, uh, we trialed it. It was really exciting. But through the process, I had two really kind of key learnings the first was it's really hard to build the right team to your point earlier how do you find talent how do you make the decision quick enough and then how do you lead them effectively um, and a startup environment is probably the best kind of environment if you really want to find out what your leadership skills are made of when you have to build a structure and organization around yourself effectively uh, and the second was moving fast enough and it was a combination of those two that, um, that put me in a position where I, I was really lucky to get the opportunity to go to BCG and continue that kind of work, but with their resources and at a much greater scale, which I was really excited about. So the, the team dynamic was a challenging one. 
And it was how do I, there's all these, all this white space, all this white space that I don't understand systems engineering. I'm not a, a, a systems architect and trying to um, quickly stand up this technology with some of the biggest companies in the world, there was this huge kind of investment and barrier to quickly solving this problem for them. So while we could do the, the smart contract um, over the top of their current systems, we'd have to do it one contract at a time, one route at a time. It's quite slow unless we solve the systems problem. And uh, that was going to take somewhere in the order of two years and in a lot more investment than we currently had. And the second was um, the competitors in that space were moving really quickly. They were really cashed up. Uh, but their approach was we're going to build a, a much better mousetrap, right? So they were going to kind of replicate the same old systems in a way. We're just going to, to optimise all of the um, individual components. And I was always had this kind of thought in my mind, are you building a faster caterpillar or are you building a butterfly? And up until that moment when I really realised the dynamic between my two key challenges, I thought I was building the butterfly and they were building the faster caterpillar. And I realised, no, 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 I was just building a faster caterpillar. My theory and what we were implementing for these clients was we had a laser-focused feature set. So we would connect these disparate sets of data across different vendors, right? We would kind of triangulate, this is your truck and this is your shipment and your invoice, right? And put it all together. And we'd lay our contract over the top of it. Uh, so we had much tighter features, so we were faster. But because of the systems issue, it was harder to replicate at scale. So uh, BCG gave me the opportunity to jump on board their team and use their uh, kind of strength in systems engineering and AI and machine learning to go out and continue to build this kind of value from a smart contract and digital procurement perspective. Dude, that's so cool. And it's amazing because, you know, it's a hard leap to take to go out and, and to do that. And when you do, you realize that whether or not you won as far as a business, that isn't as important as the experience you now have, because now you know what it's like. And also, you know, I'm a big fan of like Musk and how he approaches things. And he's, mm -hmm. he approaches them like, oh, it's most likely to fail. Like, this is probably going to fail. Yeah. Let's just, how do I mitigate like what steps can I take to mitigate failure and reduce the probability of failure and increase the probability of success? And especially like, you know, I, I so whenever I go into something new, I'm like, oh, here I go. Let's fall down a hundred times. And then after you have kids and you watch them learn to walk, you're like, that's where I get it. <laughs> you just keep falling down. You just keep getting up. And then, and then amazing, beautiful things happen along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ex exactly. And, and I think, um, you know, I really respect people that have a go that actually get stuck into something regardless of whether you may fail or not. And it's, it's a humbling but amazing journey to, to go on, right? When you're, it's your idea, you're steering the ship, it's your money on the line, it's your name to really roll those dice. And it was a hell of a lot of fun. And the, the humbling part, I guess the, the part that was, um, where I did the most growth in a way was really wrestling with the realization that I could either keep trying to raise money and keep trying to build out the systems engineering and replicate the same kind of um, 
architecture and application kind of basis that everyone else has. Or I could take what the, the really valuable piece, which was how do we mine insight into this data? How do I, uh, the, the algorithms that we developed in collaboration with these large companies, how do I take that and scale it and leverage the architecture that's already there? And that meant that I had to change the approach and I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to do that. But yeah, it, it's, you have to confront that kind of entrepreneurial drive in yourself. If I just push harder, if I just, you know, double down again, I'll get there in the end. And I think I really made the right call. But yeah. Time will tell. Yeah. Well, time, you already made the right call. You already won. You got the experience. You're now, and it's not like, it's not like you wake up and you get one shot. It's like you go, you find the next white space, you take your knowledge from the first time, you learn, you build relationships, you grow, and then you wait and you look for your and you look for your next opportunity. And then it'll show up and you'll be even better positioned. And you just keep going and you just keep doing it over and over and over. And then you'll make all the mistakes, you'll learn everything, and then eventually, boom, it'll it'll happen. <laughs> And then, like, we always have to change. Like, right now, man, we are cranking. January and February were our best months in business. We've had a really? tough, yeah, we had a tough two years, man. Like, difficult. And uh, we made it by, right? And and then January and February, and I was just getting to the point where we were like, all right, this thing's going up. It's going up. It's scaling. We're adding more people. This is good. Business is good. We're growing. We're growing. And then... COVID. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, and now I'm like, oh, we lost half of our revenue. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. what do we do now? But then that's when I start calling people. I don't like curl up in a ball and cry about it, right? Like start asking people, hey, what are you seeing in the marketplace? What parts of the market are still moving? You know, who's still mm -hmm. buying? Why are they buying? Who's growing in this and why are they growing? Okay, healthcare companies, are they growing? Can we focus on healthcare companies or government companies? Like, Let's focus on that. Let's focus on who's not upset about this. And uh, then let's change our business model. Like if we have to change our business model, we change our business model. Uh, I keep, that's why, you know, and this is, this kept running through my head, Lachlan, so many times in the past couple of weeks, you build your network before you need it. You build your network <laughs> before you need it. Because <laughs> then when crap like this happens, you can pick up the phone and call people and, and say, hey, what are you doing? How are, how are you handling this? And they share information and you share information. And then, you know, we learned recently that um, I'm paired with another top podcast, but in the HR space. And we both kind of started our journeys at the same time. And we've been sharing information for, you know, a year or two. And uh, he's like, oh man, you know, we, we lost a bunch of our revenue too. And then we uh, put on a digital event and it's like rocking and rolling. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. So now we're putting on a digital event, which we haven't talked about on the podcast until now. But uh, we're well, just going to bring, yeah, we're going to bring all CTOs together, call it like the modern CTO virtual summit. You could come on, do like a panel about startup uh, <laughs> stuff, right? If you want, you think that'd be cool? Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to. Yeah. Way to put you on the spot. Sorry about that. <laughs> we that out. Yeah, but like we look at dates and everything. But, you know, what you went through is like, you know, super important. And it's super important that you share because it's recent. And uh, because we want, I want to encourage other people to go out on that limb 
take that chance, come back, recoup, build your savings back up, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> build your life back up and then go at it again. I mean, you, you got to take big shots like that. Yeah, it's, I think um, being an entrepreneur is quite exhilarating. And part of the, the challenge for me was still trying to be a good father and then having perspective on where is this thing going and how can I keep the momentum up? And I was really in the weeds of systems engineering and trying to raise further capital and do, and we're getting further and further away from what the value of the company was. So yeah, spot on. So how, how else are you responding to, to COVID? We're, I've been flat out with the kind of COVID response here in, in Australia, but I'd love to get your perspective. So you've kind of changed and pivoted your business model and you're looking at a digital event. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Of course you buy lots of ammunition because we're in America. That's what you do. <laughs> no. <laughs> Fair enough. No, but um, yeah. So we, we, we changed it. We didn't change the business model much. Um, we just, for the leadership company, we just focused on companies that were growing and still buying. Uh, and then for the podcast, um, we decided to do this uh, virtual summit. And we realized we have like the best connections and the best people and interviews and stuff in the world like you. And, you know, why not, why not use this as an opportunity to bring everyone together? You know, because before a digital, it's so in-person events are pretty expensive. They're pretty expensive to put on. And we had thought about it. We've actually talked about doing in-person events before. And we're like, all right, where do we have the most guests? Should we, what time of the year is best? Everybody's in meetings and like, we want to get everyone together. And then, you know, people are so busy going to the in-person events, digital events kind of took a backseat. But now we like are in this prime spot where like everybody's stuck at home and uh, a digital event is like a great way to bring the, bring everyone together. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's a great idea. And, but I think the challenge is uh, the practicality around it as well. So it's something that I've been wrestling with. So um, a lot of our kind of team meetings and our, the, the kind of, um, initiatives that we run internally in the company around whether it's diversity or um you know inclusivity or trying to champion change makers in different businesses have all rolled online which has been exciting and um there's been it it, it never ceases to amaze me how people can find innovative ways to try and make online kind of uh engagement really fun and, and exciting but i'd have to say i'm still I guess at the bottom of the learning curve and trying to put these kind of um, distributed work or, or digital events on. So is there a real practical challenge to trying to wrestle this together? Um, no, I'd say it's pretty easy. Like I've got, I called up some, some past guests that have experience in doing online events. Um, produ- we have, because we do the videos for the leadership company, we have like a full video production studio and high quality, you know, video and audio equipment. Um, and so, yeah, not, not really a whole lot of, of issues, um, just execution and, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much. And then making sure that the topics are right. You know, we want good topics. Like what are you noticing with your customers right now? Like what's popular with your, in your world with technology leaders? I, I think, um, two things, everyone is really focused on 
the resilience part of COVID response. So they're setting up crisis management teams. We're trying to get visibility into the supply chain. So, um, you know, a great example is a multi-billion dollar mine may have a $5,000 part that it relies on to process the ore that's extracted, right, or the minerals that are extracted. And if that $5,000 part fails, the plan was always, we'll go and get another one from, from China or wherever it may be, right? The OEM will have one in stock, we'll go and get it. Well, those rules have kind of gone out the window in the last, you know, two months. And now that part might not be available for, say, six months. So that, so that $5,000 part could shut down a large part of the processing of a multi-billion dollar mine. The real challenge is, what are those $5,000 parts? Like, how do you get the visibility into what's impacted? Is it the electronic circuitry in it that's disrupted from a warehouse in Wuhan? Right? Or is it rubber from plantations in Southeast Asia that have been shut down because the labour force has, you know, COVID? And the current state is we don't have a great deal of visibility across, you know, industries into where our suppliers are drawing their, part, their critical parts from within their supply chain. And trying to build that visibility quickly at the moment is really the key challenge. So you, you understand what are the potential shocks that are coming and then what can I actually do about it? Is there an alternative? Are we able to change our product mix or is there something within, can we run that plant less so it has less hours on it or less chance of breaking, let's say. But all of this is really quite manual at the moment. It's really exposed in, in some sense how fragile a lot of our digital transformations that many of our companies have been on in the last couple of years actually are and obviously COVID is once in a generation type shock but at the same time if we were to have a, a digital supply chain where we had uh, real-time information from our suppliers as to their inventory, their kind of uh, supply chain, their back orders, where the actual products are coming from and the status of them and we could uh, work in a more collaborative fashion to understand where those potential shocks are and act a lot sooner. And then the actions that we can take immediately, obviously people are the most important, keeping your people safe, but the actions to try and mitigate the supply chain shocks are also limited by some fairly manual contracting tools and approaches. Right? So the, the beauty of smart contracts was with, it was automated, it was aimed at a big problem, and you could crunch, it was data-driven. Right? Uh, a lot of our contracting approaches at the moment are uh, not data-driven. They rely on you know, three or five-year tendering cycles that are very manual. They're based on lots of face-to-face -face kind of negotiation and purchasing through 40-year-old ERP systems. And your ability to quickly identify, right, it's this $5,000 part and I'm going to go to market and find an alternative for it quickly and have that alternative on a ship in here within the next week is really, really a tall order for most of the, the kind of companies in our major industries. And, you know, a lot of them are doing a great job in throwing their talent behind it and understanding where these risks are and what they could do about it. Uh, I think it, the, the penny hasn't really dropped in regards to, well, or sorry, the, the impact hasn't really started to hit because a lot of the equipment's still running or lots of our workforce is still essential and, and working. But I think the crisis response is really aimed at that from a supply chain perspective. But the technology angle of it, uh, I think, will be the solution for tomorrow. So what comes, so that's today, what comes tomorrow 
is how do we build a more digital, more resilient supply chain where we have real-time information from our suppliers. We have automated smart contracts that are able to identify stockouts. They're able to, um, we can lay optimization algorithms over the top to ensure, like the, the logistics example before, that we don't have, we're optimally packing these trucks. Um, and I, I think that, that will, there'll be a huge push to use that as a value lever to make companies more competitive and to reduce the kind of total cost of their operations coming out of this. Because I think the traditional procurement levers of trying to negotiate better prices and things in a really distressed market will be a bit of a challenge as well, right? That is interesting. That is an interesting problem. That $5,000 part could knock out the whole mining operation. Yeah, so, and, and it's not just one. So it's kind of a cumulative effect of, of all of those, um, those kind of risks, those failure points, and then it's identifying and, and doing something about it when you've got quite a manual process to interface with the world around you. So um, we're still in the early stages, I would say, of thinking about our companies as existing in an ecosystem. We still think of ourselves very much as like an actor, um, we, an independent actor in a market where we can just go to... The, the supermarket and get the goods and services and barter the price uh, that we need for our operation. And we're kind of isolated over here from everybody else. Right. And um, I think this, this shock, even though it is a, you know, once in a generation shock is going to significantly accelerate the thinking around actually we're all kind of connected here. We, we exist in an ecosystem. My actions impact that ecosystem. And I have really, uh, kind of manual or inefficient tools to get information in from it, uh, do anything with that, and then kind of influence the ecosystem back out. Um, and a great example would be someone who, who kind of really capitalizes on this ecosystem type thinking would be um, Airbus. They run a really kind of open data platform where suppliers can access more data than they have just in their small silo. And um, they really kind of leverage this to, to improve their predictive maintenance and to share kind of critical data amongst a whole heap of their suppliers. And it's really significantly reduced their operating costs and made their suppliers more effective because they can see more and they can do more. That's interesting. And the, and the airlines need all the help they can get right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you think we're going to see more decentralization? Like one of the things I thought of was there's some company out there that's building these um, essentially these, like buildings and inside they have robots that are gardening and like making food. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they've, I guess their goal is to have them um, like in different cities, like cities can buy one of these things. Right. So you could, you know, have a year round like watermelon and corn plant, you know, facility that produces you know, X amount of yield of these, these two foods or whatever foods you, you so choose. Uh, do you think that's going to happen more? Because, I mean, I kind of think it will. Yeah, so I love your example of the watermelon plant. That's a great one. Uh, I'm going to pinch that one. The, the one that I always go to, so is, um, well, to answer your question directly, yes, I do in a way. I think the concept of central or decentral will change a little bit. I think that you will have... Um, more distributed manufacturing, particularly this is going to be a real kind of driver for it. Um, 
But if you have smart manufacturing that enabled by kind of um, deep data driven by consumer insights, you understand, you know, you've got hyper-personalization of exactly what kind of, uh, you've got a 3D scan of someone's foot, you understand exactly what they need in a shoe and when they need it. You can bring the manufacturing facility that relies on robotics and 3D printing direct to the consumer. So you can have a small shoe plant in each of the you know uh, cities that it wants to service, and it can then make the the shoes instead of having these really kind of long supply chains that are based on pumping out a whole heap of orders at once in a very kind of manual way, really relying on scale and uh, kind of trying to simplify the manufacturing process. This will almost go the other direction, and you can do a a one-off shoe at a much lower kind of cost than you currently can in a much tighter time frame because it's just down the street and they can 3D print it for you. So I think in one sense there'll be a significant decentralization of um, you know, manufacturing capability or the ability to build the things that consumers want and need. It'll be much more local in the future because of these technologies. Yeah, I think that's how we stabilize things, right? Like if you decentralization as, I mean, I was talking to my brother last night who's a doctor and he, he was showing me like the new hospital that they were building. And essentially it looks like uh, how you would imagine like a civilization on Mars would look like. It's all <laughs> like these decentralized, you know, domes kind of. And, yeah. you know, because you can separate them, you can add to them. If you need, if you notice that your population starts needing this type of surgery, you could put that in there. You just do all sorts of different things uh, with these like modular designs. And I was just thinking to myself, you know, the first time I saw it happening in uh, food was when I asked the question, how do they get bread to be fresh? And I realized that there's like these bakeries and they license the brand and they'll like, the bakery will make like that same bakery is going to make like five different brands of, of bread, you yeah. know, and that's, that's in your town somewhere. <laughs> and so it's not coming from out of state. It's coming from yeah. down the street. Yeah, there's no monolithic bread factory in Wisconsin or something. <laughs> right, uh, so but there that, is like an Oreo factory. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> world's biggest Oreo production one. Um, the modular approach is really interesting. And I think in theory, it, it's an excellent concept, you could say, um, based off of we'll have much greater demographic data and um, kind of leading indicators for the health of our population instead of someone presenting at EO will be able to have um, much more kind of data-driven insights as to the overall health of the population from their, their habits and their food and exercise and things like that so we can preempt any of the care needs that they may have. And I'm not a healthcare expert, but I would think that being then able to kind of modularize the, the healthcare in the, each kind of regional um, area would probably increase outcomes and reduce cost. The really interesting part, though, will be where the rubber meets the road on um, how people perceive the modularity. So will people want to have a modular hospital where you could bring you know, the, this part of the ICU in and out, or are people going to campaign to have that capacity there all the time just in case? And then once they have it, they're not going to want to give it up. It, I think... Um, the technology is only half the story a lot of the time. It's really changing how we think about using technology um, that's, that's also 
a real part of the challenge. Oh yeah. It's almost always like, why doesn't this exist? It's so logical. It's like, well, the humans that are in charge of that, they don't feel comfortable with the newness. I mean, we forget that like core human monkey brain parts that drive us are like, we fear things we don't understand. And we have a small attention span. So it takes a lot of time to get new information in and then you get people that have growth mindset and then you get people that don't and you just we all kind of have to live together like i was reminded this week that you know with all the kids out of school you get 16 year olds driving around doing stupid things in the neighborhood right and mm-hmm. we all have to coexist right we have to we have to coexist with with people of all ages and all belief thoughts and it's just like a, it's a really interesting problem to solve but or 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 thought to have but like for example the medical supplies like we should have you know some building in every city that can manufacture or like every major city or per population that can manufacture essential medical supplies like why are we flying stuff from planes from other countries like we should at least have that like we should take like some bare essentials and make production facilities of them and it doesn't even need to be free market stuff. It could be government stuff. They're just manufacturing facilities. Like just put them up. And if, when we need them, there are supplies there so we can make whatever we, whatever, yeah. like these essential items we agree on. So the, I think the PPE supply challenge is really being felt all over the world. We have a very similar challenge here where we're trying to get enough masks and respirators and gloves and gowns to our frontline staff. And also in dealing with the same kind of community challenges that uh, of hoarding or people profiteering and, and that, that, that I'm sure you, your community is dealing with as well. Um, but I think the, the, PPE, um, the, the PPE angle is really interesting in as far as um, these were uh, highly commoditized type goods in the past, right, or right up until this happened. Um, it didn't make a lot of sense economically to have mask building facilities in each county. Yeah. It's just not something this this makes sense to do at scale and to do in a select number of places. And until there's a a crisis and everyone wants to keep their hands on those things, um, no one's really saw, I guess, a challenge with it. But now it's become one of the greatest challenges each of our communities is facing. And I I think the answer will be somewhere in between. I think the answer will be how do we make our supply chains have more flex or more resilience in them? If we have a single point of failure and that is masks come out of these three factories in China, let's say, and the, and the Chinese companies are either at capacity or they don't want to sell them to us or someone else has bought them, how do we quickly scale production in a way that we don't have to repurpose facilities that are kind of doing something else at scale um, and be behind the crisis all the time. And I, I think that's a really interesting challenge to tackle, which is what are, the, what are the goods or services that are really critical in our society and how do we have the, the capacity in our community to deal with that in an efficient way without having a single point of failure? And I think people are wrestling with it all over the world. Yeah. I think this will bring up a whole new wave of of concerns. I mean, I'd be surprised if, you know, state legislature or state government didn't decide to 
you know, build some of these concepts of like these facilities that manufacture basic things that you would need. I mean, for sustainability of a population, it's just, it would make sense. Like if aliens came here, they'd be like, why don't you guys have this type of stuff? (laughs) (laughs) They probably have a whole heap of questions for us. Like, why are you people doing it this way? Um, But yeah, PPE is probably way at the top of their list at the moment. Yeah. Or they just feel, they would know why. They'd be like, we're just waiting for you guys to mature a little bit. (laughs) This is it. This is probably just like part of our puberty. And we go where everyone's cruising along since like the 50s. Everything's going good. No war, booming economy historically from, you know, if you look at 50s to today. Mm -hmm. And then we just all realize like, oh, wow, like we can die. And we have like we have a very fragile system that was built really fast and there wasn't any need to uh to build redundancy in and now we need it exactly it'd be great um if you could share maybe with with my team um your take on working in a distributed fashion i know you've got a lot of experience in trying to manage in um clients and a team in a distributed way and also um i know that you are uh, have a growth mindset and a, a leadership student or a student of leadership, let's say, how are you facing this, this kind of crisis with your team and personally as well? Yeah. So uh, distributed work, not hard because we, we were already pretty distributed. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the things I learned when, when doing distributed work were mm-hmm. very clear objectives and outcomes and making sure those are tied to revenue and you know customer happiness uh so the more clear you are on what the exact single tiny thing is that needs to be achieved like what's the metric you can measure that's like so small so you really only wake up and have to focus on like one or two things and know and have confidence that those two things materialize into revenue yeah. uh that is what i say would be like the single hardest part for us we figured out it's uh we do this thing called planting seeds in the morning we collect uh, ideal customers' profiles. We reach out to them. We do advertising campaigns to them. So it's like, did how many seeds did we plant this morning? Uh, and then how many meetings got set this week? And then mm-hmm. how much revenue did we close? And we literally just every single day focus on those things. And we talk about them. We track them in a spreadsheet. And we just hyper-focus on those things. And other projects come and go, but we, we make sure... That, that those are the things we focus on because for our business model, those are things that happen to completely matter. We already care as humans. So like we're going to do good at customer service. We are a smaller team, right? So we're under 15 people, but we're going to care about customer service. We all really care. As the organization grows, you're going to have to change, but that's where we are at today at our team. Uh, for growth mindset, I would say it's incredibly hard. I, the The hardest thing is that you have to stay in the loop, meaning you have to consume some sort of media and media is like horribly negative. And Mm. they're designed to write the most fearful things that you read the next story so that you come back, you watch the ads so that they get more impressions. And so they're designed that way. So you have to like a diet, like balance it, right? So I just, I set up specific time. I give myself 15 minutes. To, per day to go read the headlines and check everything. And I stop myself for 15 minutes uh, in the morning when I get up, 
I, my first hour or two of the day is like no technology or anything. I just focus on, I go for a run, I make a good breakfast. Uh, I don't eat crappy food. Um, so I don't want to spike like my blood sugar or anything. So I eat good breakfast, high protein, high fat. Um, and then I listen to some audio, typically somebody smart or positive, uh, whether it's like a motivational speaker or a, somebody giving a positive speech, like a famous business person. I listen to somebody that has a positive mindset because uh, physically with your body and the way your mind operates, you'll produce different levels of serotonin and, and different chemicals in your brain. And so you want to make sure you know, I do the exercise to hit that part of it. Uh, that releases certain chemicals. Simon Sinek has a great talk about the different like dopamines and serotonins, and, like how to release them, like triggers you mm -hmm. can use to release different type of good feeling things. So I yeah. trigger myself physically. I trigger myself mentally. And that sets me up for like this baseline of the day. Uh, and then I let the world beat me up a little bit. Uh, <laughs> then I have a good <laughs> lunch and tr have, a, have a good lunch, do some jumping jacks, try mm -hmm. to listen to something for 15 minutes. And then... Uh, keep it going, but focusing on what I can control, uh, really focusing on what I can control. Uh, I built a little trying to, I built part of a gym in my garage. My wife got her hours all cut and furloughed. So she started watching videos on how to refinish cabinets and offering wow. to like refinish people's cabinets that we know. Wow. Um, yeah. And so then we turned her, we stopped parking in the garage. We took both cars out. And then her side of the garage is where she's refinishing cabinets for, for friends. Um, and then my side of the garage is where I'm working out. And, you know, uh, that's kind of, that's like the big changes in my life and how I'm handling it. And on top of everything is like, it's incredibly hard. It's just super hard. It's very mm. difficult and it's not easy. And I usually have like on a given month, I usually have like one or two bad days, right? Mm -hmm. I think I'm up to like six bad days a month. So it's, yeah, it's it's definitely gone up. And I consider bad days days where I like fudge a little bit on my disciplines, right? Mm -hmm. Like maybe I go to bed 30 minutes later than I should have. Um, or maybe I eat 100 calories more that day than I, than my diet had predicted that I eat, uh, or maybe I do one set less, you know, those are days that like, those, that's how I, that's what I consider a bad day. Uh, I beat myself up over it. Yeah. Not, uh, I, I have bad days as well. Not everyone's Jocko will Nick, right? <laughs> right. You try to be, it's a good flag to follow. I, I, I love Jocko. Um, and I love his Instagram pictures every morning of, you know, like Me too. I'm up at 3.20 in the morning um, in that really gruff voice that he has. What I like to do is look at whenever I wake up and, and the time difference between that and that and, and laugh because I'm no jocko these days, right? I'm a, a approaching middle-aged dad and I think that um, you've got to have some perspective as well. You're not always going to be the best version of yourself. I think what matters is that you try, right? That you're always striving towards it. Um, and that you realize that some days you just can't, you can't do all of the things that you would like to. Yeah. I, I do the same. I have some cheat sets or some cheat meals. Um, 
But I think when you have that kind of higher background noise, psychological pressure of the moment, um, focusing on what's important as well. So there's how you feel and, and whether you're um, being uh, you know, productive at work and treating your team the right way and, and displaying those kind of leadership, lead by example qualities. But then it's just as important or, or more important at home, right? And are you bringing it home with you and are you being calm for your kids? And I'm still working through getting the balance right as well. Yeah. And it's a, it just popped up to us as like a skill we have. You know, as you were talking earlier, I was thinking one of the topics we might want to um, cover maybe at the virtual summit is I, I keep seeing everyone, how, how you lead your teams through this, you know, how do you lead your family through this? You know, I was, yeah. I was having different conversations with my wife and I'm like, you know, communication is incredibly important. If you think that the same way that you're, you're, everyone's comfortable with the team's going to feed off your energy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the team's going to feed off of, of your mood and how you're mm -hmm. perceiving things and how you set the standard. The same is true at home. And like often I find myself like, you know, I don't want to go home and like unload on my wife, right? Like, you know, shit, we lost some revenue. This is not mm -hmm. looking good, you know, um, because she's going to be mama bear and go into protective instincts. And she's going to say, you know, shut it down. Like, let's save everything. I'm like, I'm like no, 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 no. I just needed to vent for a minute. And so I made that mistake a couple of times. And the way I countered that mistake is finding people who you can talk to about that. Yeah. Um, whether it's like outside counsel, help uh, someone through your board or someone through a friend of a friend, you know, there are people out there, like a lot of people out there who are willing to, to talk and listen and give you objective. Worst case, you just pay somebody 60 bucks for an hour and you get that stuff off your, it's a tactical and strategic method of dealing with something that's very legitimate and very real. Mm -hmm. You have to get that out. And if you get that out to your team, not good. If you get mm -hmm. that out at home to your family, then you're going to create doubt in your family and they don't need to see mm -hmm. the leader of the family as doubtful. And so I was doing these things, you know, and I was realizing, okay, like I have to find an outlet for this. And then you just, you figure it out. Um, and then once you get that outlet, then you can go in calmly and get that off your, it's just, it's like, it's like resistance. You just got to get out. It's like this built up energy that you have to let out. It's like, you have to talk about it. And mm -hmm. uh, you just have to make sure you're talking about it to the right people at the right time. Yeah, I, I really like what you said. I think it takes a lot of bravery to be able to have those conversations, at least for me. I grew up in a rural Australian community where men never showed any kind of weakness, right? And what it led to was lots of really kind of um, emotionally stunted men right? um, that weren't happy. And I've been super lucky to have a couple of really good mentors that whenever I've gotten stuck, right? So there's a problem I can't solve. I've had some kind of business challenge. I'm trying to figure out how to balance a demanding career with, you know, this desire to be a, a really good family uh, member, a family man, because that's what's really important to me is family. Um, they've always been able to, to do two things. The first is listen, right? And, and it really is quite cathartic to just, have that pressure release of 
of communicating with someone without having to kind of heroically bear the burdens, right? And it takes you outside of yourself for a minute as well. And you can see, well, hang on, I've been carrying this stuff around. Um, and then they help you kind of readjust to, all right, what's the goal? What's your, what are you doing to achieve that? What's your mission? And I, particularly ex-military guys have been really helpful for me to, to put things into perspective and to become like a happy warrior. Right? So a happy warrior is someone that, um, you know, no matter how difficult it gets in training or on the battlefield, they always have um, a smile on their face and they're very focused on their team. And one of the ways that I've uh, tried to live that, can't live it every day, but it's something I strive towards, is focusing on if my team is happy, I'm happy. And really trying to uh, you take the pressure off yourself to be perfect all the time, right? If you're going in the right direction and if you're leaving it all on the field, there's nothing else you could have done from an effort perspective, then you'd had a good day. Yeah. And that's what I, that's what I strive for. I strive to have those days. And then, and then I, I uh, proportionately beat myself up when I don't achieve them because there has to be a consequence to not achieving a standard. I mean, they're all ultimately all just thoughts in my head. Right. And so, I have to reward myself as well as punish myself for hitting goals. And that will just, and that ability, that discipline to keep doing that, I found is the most difficult thing I've experienced in life because it's you mm -hmm. versus you. And you're the one that can let that rope go and you're the one that can tighten it up. And, uh, and it's amazing because you, you're also the one that has to look at the mirror. Like it's a, I think life is a beautiful thing. And it's also a difficult thing. It's a, it's a wide spectrum of experience for sure. Yeah, I think um, I used to put a, a huge amount of pressure on myself to be perfect, to be the best at, at whatever I did, um, no matter the effort or the toll, right? And I think uh, having kids and getting older and having businesses that are successful and fail will give you uh, perspective. And one of the, the great things that that perspective has given me is that what really counts is um, how you approached it. So did you leave it all out on the field, to use a pretty tortured kind of sporting analogy? But uh, I know that if I did everything in my power to make something happen or to do it the best of my ability, and I did it in a way that was positive to the people around me, then that's enough. Yeah. It, like figuring out what makes you tick. Like I used to think, you know, in my earlier twenties, it was like money, right? It was yes. like, I want more money. Uh, I also loved programming and I was like, I want to be the best program in the world and I want a lot of money. <laughs> and then I realized when you get to the top, it's like a bunch of experts just arguing about best practices. And then if you, if you go for money, you realize like you can absolutely work yourself to death. Like that yeah. is an option. You can check the box on that option and kill yourself working. And it's this interesting thing where your mind can push harder than your body can respond. You can reach that limit and it's actually not that hard. We did a startup. We both had startups. We've, re we've reached that limit where we're saying, I can push myself to sit here for another hour and tr try to move forward. But my mental state is so bad that that'll actually create, put me in a worse situation. I ha it, the smartest move yeah. is for me to rest. And that's a hard mm -hmm. thing to do. It's like mm -hmm. you want something, but you've got to rest right now. Mm -hmm. And then and then you realize like 
wow, this is a, it's an interesting thing because you can, you can kill yourself working too hard. You can lose everything working too hard. You can be a horrible parent. You can watch your kids grow way too fast and not be a part of that. And then you start realizing, okay, how do I just design like a really good 24 hours? Mm. You know, how do I design a 24 hours where like, if I die, like I'm cool with it. Um, Mm. And then I, and that's when I found that like, it wasn't the pursuit of the money that was making me happy. It was the growth along the way. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I constantly make lists of things that make me happy. And then whenever I'm like not happy, I'm like, all right, if I want to feel happy, the hardest thing to do is flip open that phone and look at that list and then start executing items on that list. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's the, and it's the beautiful part because it's like, uh, it's constantly renewing battle. Because yeah. like we wake up and it's like a reset and it's yeah. like, oh, I have the opportunity to do this. And one of my favorite Jocko things is when he's talking about success and failure being really slow. He's mm-hmm. like, they're typically, have you heard him say that? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Oh, because he's right. It's like these compounding actions that happen over like days and turn into weeks and then months. And then that's what it takes a long time in both directions. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's exactly how I've experienced it. There's no, nothing happens kind of overnight. Um, but uh, yeah, what you said is really interesting. I think that um, one of the ways that I've kind of approached it is there's no gold medals for exhaustion, right? They're not, there won't be anyone <laughs> there at you know, the 23rd hour of your mar- you know, mar- coding marathon, like giving you um, water and Gatorade and telling you to push further. And I found that when I, when I have a healthy balance in my life, uh, I'm much more effective. And I think that really just comes with experience. I think there's a lot of um, entrepreneurs, let's say, that, that spruik this kind of constant grind mindset, right? And I think a lot of that's just not real. And a lot of it's motivated by money, right? Or, or they're trying to sell something to people that to people that just haven't done it. I think if you have start had your own business, you've you've built technology, you've actually seen results. Um, you realise that the journey to be successful on that journey, you need to be sustainable, and you need to be uh, effective over a long period of time, not just brilliant on the day. And uh, it really comes down to the people you meet as well. And if you're exhausted and too in the weeds and you can't see the real value in what you're doing or able to pivot, uh, investors invest in the person. They don't invest in your algorithm. And what kind of person are they investing in? Now, you make a good point. And also, like to add to that, when when you're valuing burnout workout style, right, especially as a leader and you're looking for that in other people, you end up with a burnt out and effective organization, Mm -hmm. right? But if you fit, once you gain the maturity and you go through the pain and you do your time and you realize I need a sustainable routine because compounding over time is what's going to, it works with everything. It works with your physical health. It Mm -hmm. works with your financial health. It works with your business. Everything is compounding over time. And so it's like, how do I get people, once you get past that, you're like, how do I get people that are going to come compound with me? Mm-hmm. And then and then I'll have the patience to, to coach them through. I mean, if you, if you beat yourself up, how long did you do that startup for? Like two years? Two years, yeah. 
Yeah. Once you beat yourself up and go through all of that emotional roller coaster over the course of two years, like you just, you don't forget those lessons. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. The scars by this stage, I think. Yeah. So, so what's your main, like what's generating you revenue at work? You're, you're working on those smart contracts with other clients now, or what type of stuff are you doing at, at BCG? Yeah. So um, at BCG, I'm tackling procurement from an operations perspective, which is how does a company interact with its supply base, its supply chain, and uh, really looking at how do we leverage digital procurement, so digital tools, whether that's um, being able to aggregate this, those disparate data sources into something that's meaningful to make data-driven decisions and then interact with suppliers in a much more uh, data-driven way or looking at things like predictive analytics or AI over the, over the top of really large, complex, distributed networks of suppliers to drive insight and value. So um, uh, to our wash plan example before, understanding what are those kind of critical parts, where may they fail, but at the same time, if we could build a digital twin of a really complex operation from the pit to the port, we say, so from where we actually mine the ore all the way through to where it hops on a ship and all of the processing steps in between, you can then get an understanding in a digital way of how the trucks and excavators are moving to the mine plan, uh, how efficient they are, where they're dumping into the hoppers to go through the, the processing facilities, how efficient the processing facilities are, and you can start to really identify, A, how is my value chain constructed where is the friction between each kind of part or phase of that value chain? And how do I optimize the overall value chain by pulling a lever in processing or pulling a lever in the pit? And then the beauty of a digital twin is you can run simulations to understand the impact of decisions that you may take instead of, in, in, the, in the world at the moment, trying to make those decisions with a lot less data. And you're right, a leader has to make decisions without all the data available but the more data hopefully the better the decision right oh absolutely yeah if you can get if you can get high quality reliable data uh, then you just you consume that and then your experience does its thing and then you're better mm -hmm. positioned to to make a decision so you're building that like that digital twin that's like a software product or something and that's like what you help build yeah, so uh, we have a couple of teams at BCG that are, you know, world-class at building these kind of digital products. Uh, one of them is called BCG Gamma, so it's our data science division. Uh, and Gamma will uh, help uh, companies define how they can drive value from their data. Usually big data, it's really messy, distributed, and where I'm particularly kind of interested in, in driving um, you know, driving work at the moment is how do we uh, leverage these kinds of technology in a supply chain space or in the from a supply chain perspective? Because we can look at our operation, um, you know, across the value chain from end to end, from pit to port, but we should open that value chain up to understand what are the key inputs or actions we take that impact our suppliers. If we want a specific specification truck and it operates to a specific kind of um, set of conditions in a mine, is that the right design for that truck? Or can we leverage generative design with our suppliers to understand here's the particular kind of operating conditions, here's the particular maintenance plan or the, the complexities or variables around 
how we operate or, or our constraints from a capital or efficiency perspective, the lengths of the hall runs, for example. How do we design a, you know, a better product together in a collaborative way to reduce the cost that we put onto the supplier and then ultimately the cost that we receive from the supplier in form of contract? Dude, that is actually, that sounds like really fun. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, and a really amazing place to work. And um, like I said, the key challenge in my past in my startup was trying to find the right team. And it's really um, exciting to be around people that want to take the smart contracts and uh, digital procurement and scale it right across, uh, you know, a whole heap of industries and move quickly, right? So it's, it's what are the, what's the, kind of laser focus features driven by data that will have the largest impact and being flexible in what that is or how we apply it. That's pretty cool, man. You know, I've also heard a lot of companies um, doing like divestitures where they'll take an idea, they'll have something that's been, you know, processed a number of times or have a number of customers on it and actually spin it out into its own thing, like its own brand, but they'll own it, fund it, move team members with it so divestiture is always an interesting interesting move yeah i, I think that that's definitely a, a an area of growth for not just consulting firms but firms in general so um at bcg we have a division called digital ventures and digital ventures are effectively a, a, a startup um accelerator so they will help businesses um uh, build and scale digital offerings effectively. Uh, and they do some really exciting work with trying to think through what do companies need on the long term? Like how can they leverage the data that customers or the, the strengths that they have in their current offering into a completely new and digital business model? Well, shout out to them for being amazing and for having you on the team. Dude, this is awesome. Is there anything that we want to get out there that we weren't able to get out there today? Uh, so I think um, it's a great opportunity to just talk about the COVID response that and the COVID challenge that people have at the moment. Um, we're working with you know, a whole range of people in, um, I guess, two phases. The first is what's the crisis response to now? So how do we um, understand where the risks are in our supply chain and what can we do to address them, right? What are those $5,000 parts that could you know, uh, shut down the, our processing facility and then what can we do about it? So if we engage our suppliers one-on-one -on -one in a fairly manual way now, what's the fastest way to find those gaps? And then how can we leverage our team in a distributed way to try and address or mitigate any of those um, risks where we can't get parts, we have labour shortages, we may have a failure in our system, right? So there's that crisis response angle, right, to... We need to keep the health of our supply chain and try and build some resilience into it quickly and respond to the disruption that COVID is going to drive. And then the second is, what do we do tomorrow? So how do we leverage digital tools and the, the kind of new way of approaching procurement um, to drive further value and try and increase the resilience of our supply chain uh, for the longer term? COVID's really demonstrated just kind of how fragile and manual a lot of our processes are about how we interface with the world around us, how we interface with our suppliers. It's 
we rely on tendering and manual negotiations. We have not data-driven contracts, so we have very poor visibility as to what their stock level is or the health of them without actually picking up the phone and talking to them one-on-one. And then it's how do we work in a collaborative fashion to reduce the total cost of our ownership over time. And uh, I think that the digital tools that we discussed earlier to do with could we look at a digital twin for operations and um, understand where the friction points are where we're pushing cost on, onto our supply chain or leveraging smart contracts where we've automated the kind of key terms driven by real world telemetric data so we understand where the truck is we understand how many people have passed through the gate or how many people have purchased this item when we've done this advertising campaign i think we'll really increase the the flex capacity and drive further value um, to try and respond to the kind of real key gaps that have come from this once in a generation crisis right yeah i'm interested to like you just sparked the thought like the google and amazon data centers are obviously dependent on manufactured uh computing parts and what's what's their status right now you know, like if, if the data center needs to expand, like, you know, do the math. If you shut down the production of new motherboards or chips or whatever for X amount of time, eventually we're going to have more need, more demand for data center space than we can produce data center parts, right? Yeah, exactly. So then uh, what happens? <laughs> exactly. Then what happens, right? So, um, the, the key kind of challenge is how do you manage your stock levels and how do you uh, kind of flex your business depending on um, how, whether you have any redundancy for these kind of critical pieces of your uh, value chain. So your data center is a great example. Um, if we are running out of data center parts, right, for, from a maintenance perspective or new data centers for new business, what does that, how can we leverage the space that we have, make it more resilient, hope um, that, you know, we, we find new ways so that it doesn't break down or, or make it more, um, make the uptime more reliable or dependent, right, uh, or independent, because eventually we'll run that stock down and we'll have to look at trying to switch suppliers or um, trying to develop a way to get those factories switched back on. So the key, you've hit the nail on the head, it's a key challenge of how do you really manage the, the supply chain risk? And my challenge would be it's not just the data centers, it's all of the kind of critical componentry around that that would be affected to different levels as well. And how do you quickly find and, and do something about it? Oof. Well, lots of interesting I think the economy is going to have a lot of new opportunity after COVID. I think mm-hmm. different countries are going to prepare differently for the next potential outbreak. I think there's going to be lots of new technologies, new types of businesses. I think at a minimum, some countries will work on making sure that the medicines they need can be manufactured, even if they're not primarily manufactured, that they can be manufactured. Like certain medicines and certain life supporting supplies should probably be able to be manufactured by the countries or, and then streamline it too. Like when I saw all, I talked to the CTO Ford recently about Mm -hmm. the ventilators, 
but uh, I didn't talk to him about this, but I saw like all different, like Dyson collaborated and then Ford collaborated with GE. You get all these different companies with all these different ventilators. Like why, you know, why wasn't there a standard ventilation design? Maybe it's because like they had to design something based off of parts they already had. You know, I don't know. I'm sure there's good, some good answers to it, but you know, you would think that there would be, you would think that this problem would be solved and it wasn't, and it's kind of a surprise. So now I feel like we need to hold people's attention post apocalyptic scenario <laughs> to, to actually do these things versus everyone just talking about them and be like, hey, it was once in a lifetime. <laughs> yeah. So I, you've made a great point, which is will everyone just go back to what they were doing or how things were? And I think, um, it would be nice too for some for some industries or some businesses to be able to do that. And I think governments, particularly our government here, is trying very hard to build a bridge between you know, pre-COVID to post-COVID and, and kind of get through it and start operating again. But I, I think uh, the the it will accelerate the pace of you know uh, adopting digital change in um, procurement, specifically around how data-driven contracts are, how quickly you can make a contractual change or how quickly you can source something and the visibility you have. So do we actually understand who the alternative is for this um, data centre maker, for example, right? Or do we understand what the industry standard is for uh, building a ventilator? And if not, why not? What, how do we build one? Is it more expensive or less expensive? Is it better quality for the patient or less quality? And I think that from a value perspective and from a resilience perspective, most companies will see that they're going to have to accelerate that change because A, they're going to be really exposed if this happens again. They've had a lot of challenges around flexing their procurement response, understanding where those gaps are and moving fast enough. Uh, and the second, from a value perspective, is there's a huge value uh, at stake in reducing the friction with how you interact with the outside world. And a lot of those companies are going to be willing and, and, and kind of looking to invest in how they make da better data-driven decisions as well. So I think there'll be a lot of ground for collaboration in exploring um, or adopting smart contract technology or adopting, you know, digital tools like the digital twin to understand how do we generate friction and what's the best specifications or way of working, uh, how do we deploy our products most effectively and understand ahead of time from a, from a predictive point of view uh, whether we need to maintain something, whether something will fail or whether we have a supply chain issue. Well, we'll find out. <laughs> Man, this is good. I, I really enjoy talking. I'm so excited to like start having you know more past guest on again because after you get past that first conversation it's just like it's a lot more it's a lot easier to have a second conversation so i look forward to having you on again <laughs> yeah. a third time man sure this was heaps of fun thanks joe awesome man have a great afternoon cheers thanks so much